0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. Tim O'Reilly is the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media Inc. His original business plan was simply interesting work for interesting people, and that's worked out pretty well. He publishes books, runs conferences, invests in early stage startups, and urges companies to create more value than they capture and tries to change the world by spreading and amplifying the knowledge of innovators. In this powerful combination of memoir, business strategy guide, and rallying cry, Tim O'Reilly draws on lessons from network platforms, including Amazon, Google, Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft, to show how our economy and financial markets have become increasingly managed by algorithms. He believes a world ruled by machines that are hostile to humanity is not a distant possibility, and that the systems we are building today are already shaping the future. It's up to all of us, he argues, to ensure that the new technologies that shape tomorrow are causes not for worry, but for wonder. WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, on sale October 10th from Harper Business.
1: Our world is being shaped by technology in ways that most people don't understand. I wrote this book really for three audiences. And it's interesting because I've given early copies to members of my family and watching their response as they, I think, get some deeper understanding of the way that technology is influencing our world, I think it has been very gratifying to me. Uh, But I also have written it, though, for technologists themselves, urging them to think about the consequences and the responsibility they have for what they do. And finally, for policymakers to indicate... Uh, some directions for thinking about some of the thorny issues of the day, uh, including, you know, fake news. But more importantly, what do technology platforms teach us about the state of the economy?
0: Remind our listeners what you do to sort of empower us to react differently to what we're then going to read every day Mm -hmm. in the newspaper and think about when we go to the ballot box. Well, I I think the
1: biggest thing— it's not an easy answer, but I think it's an important one to hear. And the most important thing that we can do is to believe that things can be different. You know, there was a time when everyone believed in the divine right of kings and along came a set of people, you know, in a series of, you know, social movements who said, no, we think we can do it differently. And we're at an inflection point in our economy, which is driven by technology in many ways, where we have to believe something different. We can't just keep repeating some version of the old menus. And so ultimately, it's that group belief in a different world, one in which the fruits of prosperity, which are generated by our machines, are distributed perhaps in a different way. That we aren't in the end state of capitalism, but in fact that we are in a place where we could improve it in the same way that we expect Facebook to improve their algorithms to deal with fake news. Uh, We can expect that our government, our policymakers, our businesses will use technology not to put people out of work because uh, that's what the system tells them they should do. But instead, to have the system tell them to put people to work solving the world's great problems, uh, engaging everyone in a productive economy of caring and creativity, and all the things that we can do now that the machines can do more of the work.
0: Yeah, you say that we, as we automate something that humans used to do, how can we augment them so that they do something newly valuable? I think that's, a, that's very succinct.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I think the the idea that this time is different is a big mistake. Every time we've used technology to turn something into a commodity, we've actually created more work. And so the the, the question I ask in the book, and, and I really there are a lot of economists, you know, from Thomas Piketty, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, of fame uh, on that, wrestling with this issue. But I came at it from the point of view, of a technologist Mm -hmm. because I see the same things that these uh, economists who are looking at inequality uh, have come to, which is that platforms succeed when they're generous and when they create value for people and they fail when they try to capture too much of the value for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the inequality story that we're seeing in our economy Mm -hmm. told uh, in this other microcosm. There are a lot of lessons for how technology platforms can deal with this, that we can then say, oh, well, we just have to do that in our economy. How do we keep that virtuous circle Mm -hmm. going? And we actually see it in surprising places. So back to this idea of technology empowering people to do things that were previously impossible. You know, just think about a platform like Uber or Lyft, Mm -hmm. which lets ordinary people find a passenger anywhere Mm -hmm. and get them anywhere. You know that's because we have this cognitive augmentation in the form of this mapping application that tells people how to find each other and how to get them where they need to go, which means that more people can participate in that economy. And so around the world, there are now millions of people do- delivering driving services versus the old system, and passengers are happier. Now, again, mm-hmm. New York, very special place where you can usually get a cab, although not always, just try to jab it at Javits sometime. <laughs> um, but... For all the things that are wrong about Uber, it teaches us something about cognitive augmentation and jobs. Same thing with Amazon. They now uh, are, basically, they put 45,000 robots to work in their warehouses from 2014 to 2016. They added 250,000 people because they didn't say, wow, we're going to use these robots to cut our costs and get people out of the warehouses. They said, we're going to use these robots to put more products on next-day delivery, start doing same-day delivery. They put hundreds of thousands of people more. They actually have a service called Amazon Flex that's a lot like Uber and Lyft, except it's for delivery. Mm -hmm. And they're employing hundreds of thousands of people in this. And what's really interesting is that while people are saying, oh, my God, the robots, well, at least they're destroying all the retail jobs. Well, there's a, there's a an economist named Michael Mandel at the Progressive Policy Institute who recently published some research, not in the book. It came out later than the book. The warehousing jobs that are being created pay better than the retail jobs that are being replaced, and they're likely to be more numerous. It's, it's kind of crazy. We, we don't understand this pattern that we saw in the past can repeat if we do the right thing. Things as businesses.
0: So, uh, so how does one get that message out to the broader public, like my sister and I, and again to to our um, legislators and the people that are influencing policy to sort of say to, to do exactly what you yeah. what you posit, which is to to act more generously and to be rewarded by that thinking. It, I have to tell you, I, I I loved the book. I think it gave me hope, but it didn't diminish. That feeling that I have mm-hmm. of being somewhat overwhelmed with like, okay, yeah. what's what the heck difference can I make? And and, yeah. and it's gonna kind of go the story is gonna be told the way the storytellers say it's gonna be told. Yeah, regardless I, of what the reality is. You I, know what I mean? I
1: understand. I, I do think though, this is a wonderful phrase uh, in one of Hemingway's novels where a character describes uh, how bankruptcy happens. which uh, she's gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> you know, and uh, Uh, I think that technology change and idea change happens the same way. And that's why I actually open the book with some stories of how I have participated in some of those idea changes in the past. Yeah,
0: I think that's a good point. You know,
1: when I entered the technology industry, it was dominated by first IBM and then Microsoft, these vast monopolies that nobody thought could be upended. And then Microsoft was upended by open source software. And I still remember... You know, there was the the first narrative was this narrative about free software and Linux, and it was, but it was like the old paradigm was just like our guys versus your guys, and we're better. And and I said, actually, no, there's a new world because you don't recognize that the internet is also built on free software, and everybody had the internet had come in through the back door. I still remember how when I first said that, people had not made the connection, yeah. and I watched them make the connection. And over a period, of, literally, it was about a week. You know, it went from. Free software is the uh, you know, sort of the enemy of software to go, oh, no, free software is inside this thing that we all are amazed by and that we love. Oh, it's okay. And I feel that's the kind of thing I'm trying to do with this book is to create some new ideas. Mm. You know, we actually are building a kind of global brain. You, know, you see it in Facebook, the way ideas spread so quickly and so powerfully. And so the question is, can we launch some new ideas? and we have in the past had these ideas that took over. And one of the narratives I tell in the book is how the idea of shareholder value, which is, you know, cr- the only responsibility of a business is uh, to make money for its shareholders took over starting in the 70s and began to gut our economy. And, you Didn't know, they trace
0: I, that back to like a, a Harvard Business Review case? And, well, and it was
1: originally uh, a piece by Milton Friedman, but then this uh, guy named Michael Jensen at Harvard yeah, uh, b- uh, right? Business School ended up preaching it. Uh, and then it just
0: yeah, spoke, like that's he right. Said, it just sort of took. A- and,
1: and this idea is starting to catch on. You've seen Duff McDonald's book just came out uh, talking about Harvard Business School's ro- role in this. Uh, Rana Faruhar's "Makers and Takers." We're starting to understand this, and. I sense that tipping point of gradually, yeah. then yeah. suddenly. Yeah. And you see it also, of course, in the political sphere where people are very clearly dissatisfied and we're looking for new ideas. And it's actually, ironically, it's Milton Friedman who, who wrote that piece in 1970 that said, uh, the only responsibility of business is to make money for shareholders, also said something really smart. He said, the job of people like me is to put ideas into the world and for them to be picked up by policymakers when they need them. you know. And, and yeah. I think we're at the point where, where we need fresh ideas. People are starting to recognize that we need those ideas. And this is just, I hope, one small step forward in putting the, some ideas yeah. out there that people can and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense.
0: It does. And do you feel... Like people are starting to listen to you. Like, do you feel like you're engaged in an exchange with other policymakers or people in the industries? And I I just, I wonder.
1: Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I I will say, you know, I have a large following in the technology industry. Of course, yes. And there are definitely, you know, startups that I have influenced. I still treasure the day one. entrepreneur told me, yeah, I had this startup idea, but it didn't pass the Tim O'Reilly test, so oh, I didn't good. do it. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I talk in the book about how, you know, people should be work on stuff that matters. You know, I, I see these amazing examples, you know, back to on-demand, you know, which you go, well, great, you know, so rich people can get picked up quickly in their cars, they can get their products next day. There's a startup uh, called Zipline that I, I kind of tell a little bit about towards the end of the book. Uh, that's taking drones and on-demand, and they're delivering you know, blood and medicines in Rwanda, and, you know, a country yeah. that has no developed hospital infrastructure, bad roads, where postpartum hemorrhage is the leading cause of death in women. And you, know, you go, wow. They're like, wow, with all this new technology, we can get blood anywhere in the country in 15 minutes. You know, and that's kind of awesome, you know, that, that people are going, well, we don't have to just do it the old way. Yeah. And that, to me, is is what I, the idea that I'm trying to put out there, that uh, that there's these points where technology makes new things possible. And just as, you know, a technologist like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you know, has a breakthrough when he thinks the unthinkable, you know, our policymakers can also think the unthinkable. After, after all, you know, when... Franklin Roosevelt introduced the New Deal. That was unthinkable.
0: One of the things that I like the most about this book is that you quote from a, a wide variety of sources, both economists, but also poets, and fiction writers, and everything else. And one of the quotes that stood out to me was you, you quote Michael Lewis as saying, you never know what book you wrote until you find out what people read. Have you gotten a sense yet of sort of what book you wrote based on on readers' reactions?
1: Um. You know, it's interesting because I, I have a wide variety of readers, as you hinted at at the beginning. Uh, what I've actually been most gratified by has been the response of non-technical readers who
0: yeah.
1: don't know the history of much of this technology, don't know how it works, and are saying, wow, it's really helping me understand this. Yeah. And and that's very, very gratifying to me. Um uh, you know, back to the, the the Michael Lewis quote. It was uh, in a conversation he had with Terry Gross, uh, and he was she was asking him, why would these people on Wall Street ever come talk to you if uh uh you know after they read Liars Poker? And he said, Well, you and I lo- look at that book and we see it as an indictment of Wall Street. Yeah, you just... know, and there were all these people who read it as a how-to manual, you know? <laughs> And uh uh that was what he said, you never know what book you wrote until you know what pe- book people read. Uh, and it's just like a lovely quote. But, you know, I, I like to think that I will have influences that surprise me. I know that certainly in my past career uh, you know, there are, you know, I, uh, you know, what your readers may not know, I'm, I'm a publisher myself, really, of how-to books in technology originally. Also, I run technology conferences, have a big online learning platform. But you know, in my early days as a publisher, in the early days of the internet, you know, I sold books, and then people went on to start multi-billion-dollar businesses based on those books. They told me, you know, I, you know, hey, I started my my company with an O'Reilly book, and uh, you know, that kind of uh, power of ideas and information to shape the world should not be underestimated.
0: So, I want to talk to you about your work as a publisher and your work in publishing technology Mm -hmm. most specifically and how it relates to this effort that you've just made. So you have published a full-length book with a legacy publisher in um, WTF. How has that been? How how has that experience been for you?
1: What I find most interesting about it, and it really uh, confirms uh, my decision to do it with Harper rather than to publish it myself, is there are information pathways in our society uh, that have been laid down and that certain people travel. And, uh, you know, I have a powerful set of information pathways. And I I made the decision. I said, I know how to reach my audience. you
0: need to reach my sister now.
1: That's right. I want to reach a different audience. And it's just been really interesting watching, you know, for example, the amount of attention that I've gotten because I've published this book uh you know the, the amount of media that is still surrounds the publication of a book it's, a, it's an important badge in intellectual society and it teaches us something about the hidden structure of idea transmission we're, we're all focused the hidden on the
0: structure of idea transmission i like that
1: yeah we're all focused on the way that you know new media is shaping that but there's still a very powerful set of you know idea transmission mechanisms in in old media,
0: <laughs> well, when I when I when I talk to people about my work, and particularly when I'm interviewing people that might want to come work here, I say, "Look, our job is to start national conversations with anything that we publish. You know, to really to do exactly that—to sort of get people reading, thinking, talking." So, uh, it, I do think that to have that support of the media and everything else really does help us get to where we're trying to go, which is to engage those readers.
1: Yeah, I would love to start a national conversation.
0: Right, I think that's exactly what you're doing, and I I know that I've talked about the book since I've read it, and it has completely influenced the way, like I said, that a way that I'm reading about these topics and these challenges. So I I appreciate that.
1: So just to be clear, what those topics are: things like artificial intelligence, uh, uh, on-demand uh, systems, the the strange, changing structure of the corporation in response to to network technology. Um,
0: now one of the things that you say very specifically is that you believe that we need to improve the algorithms that manage our markets and companies. So talk to us a little bit about because you hear the word algorithm all the time. Yeah. but talk to us about that.
1: There's really four parts to the book. and the, the first part is you know just a set of techniques that I've used over the years to see technology trends and understand them as they were happening. Uh, so it's kind of a practical how-to on you, you know, on how to do that. And then the second part is about understanding the sh- what platforms mean in technology today. And the third part is really understanding how systems like Google and Facebook work inside. Mm. Um, you no know, I, I actually ask. start with this notion. I said, you know, when you look at uh, a company like Google or Facebook with a 20th century mindset, you think that the programmers there are workers just like uh, in a factory, except they're producing software. But when, what you really have to understand is the workers at Google and Facebook are programs, these algorithmic systems, and those programmers are their managers. And so that's where I start from. And and you know, there's other parts of the book where we're exploring the way that humans are managed by algorithms. So, for example, not just in... Uber and Lyft, but, say, in by the scheduling algorithms that are used at McDonald's or the Gap yeah, or yeah, Walmart. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so algorithms are basically a set of rules to get somewhere. Now, I, I talk about the progress of those algorithms from you know, simple rules to uh, statistical methods, which is what Google used for a long time, and now increasingly artificial intelligence, which uh, is a much more sophisticated set of tools for still achieving an end, that the programmers are you know trying to achieve. So in the old days, they would have some very primitive uh, methods for saying recognize speech or recognize an image. And now with AI, they have very much more sophisticated methods that are much more compact. I think for example, Google Translate you know went down from 500,000 lines of statistical code to this, you know, uh, you know tens of thousands of lines of code around this uh, AI model. and it's better. You know, so the same thing can happen. But the programmers are still telling that system what What to to do. do. So then I I start talking about fake news. And the the message I'm trying to get across is you can, once you understand how these algorithms work, you can also understand they don't always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I use the analogy, which I I really developed uh, further in a series of talks I've been giving lately, uh, which is that these digital algorithms are like the genies of Arabian mythology and if you've read any of these stories you know you, you know that if you don't frame your wishes just right
0: yeah, you get something uh, you get
1: something other <laughs> than what disastrous. you expected yeah. and and facebook is a great example of that you know so basically Mar- mark and his crew are are saying wow we're going to reinforce the kinds of content that people find engaging you know, clearly they see certain content from their friends and they like it and they reshare it, so we'll show them more of the same. And we'll use this, we'll train our, our AI and our algorithms to, to recognize what they like and give them more of it. And then suddenly they mm. discover that this is feeding hyper-partisanship. Not only that, that, uh, you know, that rogue actors, whether they're spammers uh, out for profit or uh, foreign uh, agents, have figured out how to kind game the system. And so they're now hard at work having to fix it. And so then I kind of say, well, we have to understand that our economy is increasingly dominated by another one of these vast algorithmic digital systems, and that's our digital finance system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in which increasingly, which it, you know, is dominated by effectively spammers, <laughs> <You know? laughs> people who are basically... You know, they're 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 not they're not actually causing. You know, financial markets were designed to support the real economy. Uh, that is, to invest in businesses, invest in people. And first of all, we did two things wrong. We came up with the wrong. What I call it in the book the fitness function. You could also call it the objective function or the optimization function, which is. You know, this idea that, no, just optimize for shareholder value. And just like Facebook thought that optimizing for engagement would lead to positive results, the people who put out that rule into our economy thought that it would lead to good results. It was a political philosophy, an economic philosophy. But we look around. Yeah. You know, people are out of work. We have an opioid crisis. The, the, you know, the, the inequality is increasing. The American dream is is dying. And you go, oh, clearly they got it wrong. So, we need to be holding our financial system to account in the same way that we are holding Facebook to account today. Right. And we need to say, you're not producing the result that you think you're producing. Let's fix it.
0: And the premise needs to be changed. But I don't see anybody, who is holding anybody accountable to our financial systems? I mean, you 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 yeah. see them demand that... Facebook and Google show up and and go oh, before I, hearings, but it, it, nothing.
1: Well, I, absolutely. I, I think that uh, that is part of the issue. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a good example of somebody who's trying to do that. You know, she's I've been on this campaign for a long time, uh, understanding that that uh, uh, there's something wrong. there. Bernie Sanders kind of coming out there. Trump actually talks that he just doesn't right. actually act it. Right. And uh, um, that to me is. You know, it, those are all signs, though, that people are struggling with these issues. Mm. You know, which goes back to yeah, gradually, gradually and then and suddenly. suddenly.
0: Good. Okay. Well, that's hopeful.
1: Yeah, it is hopeful.
0: I mean, I, I I think you've given us so much ammunition, if nothing else, in terms of being better informed and and like I said, better able to decide what to do. When we hit that ballot box. I think about that a lot nowadays. I think about, okay, well, what could we have done better to educate ourselves prior to going into the ballot box this last election? And so I think something like this is really very helpful. I want to ask you just a few questions as a writer. Who's your first reader?
1: Uh, Well, my first reader was my wife, Jennifer Palka, who's the founder of an organization called Code for America, which basically brings people from the technology industry to work on public service. Uh, She also helped start something called the United States Digital Service at the White House. uh, She was Deputy Chief Technology Officer under Obama. Uh, But also, uh, I had a remarkable set of people who uh, were reading it as I was writing it. Uh, Bill Janeway, who's a former venture capitalist, and was actually on the board of my company, uh, he's now, a, he's an economist by training and has written a wonderful book called Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. And uh, uh, he, he was a very devoted reader. Hal Varian who's the chief economist at Google, uh, uh, read Constantly, you know, he kind of he, he, he I kind of got a master class in economics. He would read something. He'd say, "No, you need to go read this paper." Oh my gosh! You need to go read this paper.
0: So, how and, long from start to finish did it take you to to write?
1: Uh, well, about about a year. Yeah, well, that's the, pretty quick. The, yeah, uh, and the bulk of the writing was actually in about four months. Yeah, you really? know, I write for a living. Yeah. So you know whether it's uh, you know writing talks, you know I yeah. write all my own speeches. Right. So uh, and uh, you know I write on the on the internet. So. And I've written literally hundreds of technical books over the years. so just so like I can part, yeah, sit yeah, down yeah. here and talk to you, I can sit down and write something.
0: <laughs> yeah. What would you say is your most marked characteristic as a writer?
1: Uh, um, the thing a lot of people will remark on is the fact that I will go from you know technology to economics to poetry yeah yeah <laughs> and uh you know it's same thing I, i'm 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 stuffed with quotations you know? i love and, that i love that and uh, i actually great. had uh you know one one reader was like "Well, oh, do you really need that t.s Eliot in there oh, and, no, I, you I, do. I, and i'm like yeah damn straight i do, you, <laughs> do. <laughs> you know because part of it is i i i'm also somebody who loves things you know i yeah, love the ideas across. i love the yeah you know and, and like you know, I go, I want people to read yeah. East Coker. It's such an amazing poem about yeah, yeah. transformation. And yeah. then if you can, you know, just here's just a little taste of it.
0: Yeah, of enthusiasm. You know, or Wallace
1: Stevens. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I read Wallace Stevens in high school, and it's been, he's been a constant companion in my life ever since.
0: What do you think is your principal um, deficit as a writer?
1: Well, uh, I think my certainly my principal deficit in this book is that— uh, I did not have the time to make it shorter. Uh, I, I I do think... <laughs> it takes you know, a
0: long time to, to yeah, edit. Yeah, <laughs> I always love
1: this uh, one line, a uh, quote I heard once from W.H. Auden, the poet. He said, whenever I write a line that I particularly like, I strike it out. And and I, I know that when I've done my best writing where I've really honed something, you know, I've, I've literally, uh, you know, I go, oh, that's really good, but it's in the way. I got to take it out. You know, I, because I... You know, like if I had had two or three years to write this book, and I'd gotten the first draft done, and then let it sit for six months, and then gone back to it, I think I would. You know, just even as I've been, you know, uh, writing a lot of talks uh, going up to the launch, I feel like I'm making the story much crisper, mm-hmm. and I I wish I could go back and uh, and and tighten it up in places.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for WTF What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, which is on sale today. October 10th from Harper Business. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.